Good morning, Grace family. Can you please turn to your Bibles to Exodus 2? I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy New Year to those of you who weren't here last Sunday. Welcome to 2022. How are we doing today? Doing all right? Okay. Just scanning the room, seeing how we're doing. Okay. <laughs> Decent sense of it. Okay, good. Um, so we're going to do, in this new year, we're going to do a series on the life of Moses. And um, were those groans or were those like, ah, oh, I couldn't tell what that sound was, but... Um, we haven't been in the Old Testament for a while. I thought it'd be good to be in the Old Testament. It'd be fun to be in a narrative. And, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, pound for pound, Moses is probably top five in the Bible. So he's a very central character, obviously played a central role in the central story of, of what God was up to in his people. And, uh, but what this is going to be, it's not going to be such a character study of Moses. Um, we're going to get to see God uh, at work through uh, Moses. We're going to get a sense of who is God through the eyes of Moses, through the experiences of Moses, through what Moses was uh, called to be a part of. So really, this is going to be just another opportunity to, to explore and to marvel at who our God is and what he's up to in this world and how we, even today in 2022, get to be a part of that. So that's what we're going to do. And today, before we look at Moses himself, we get the backstory of Moses. Uh, so Ali just, you know, read um, about his birth, of course, and some of the, the women who made some decisions that actually allowed his life to even happen, and we'll look at that in a couple minutes. But what I want to do is kind of just set uh, Moses within that immediate story of the, the people who made some decisions, but even more than that, just remind us of the bigger backstory of Moses, the big context of, of what was going on and what God was up to that Moses got to be a part of. So I actually want to go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to read a little bit of uh, chapter 1, which gives us kind of the larger story that gives us the context for Moses' life. So go back to chapter 1, and I'll jump in at verse 6, and I'll read um, 
the first, through verse 16. Now Joseph, you guys remember Joseph, right? And all his brothers and all that generation died. So remember, they had come down to Egypt during a famine, right? There were 70 of them. Uh, they had come down, verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as the store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were pressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the... Sorry, I was going to make a bad joke there. Uh, when you are helping the... If we're going to have dogs, we'll, may, we'll name them Shifra and Pua. That's a bad joke. I shouldn't have said it. I said it anyways. <laughs> Didn't happen in first service. Shouldn't happen in second service. When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Okay, sorry for making light of an actually very intense passage. All right, so that's the larger context. So um, you probably wouldn't know this, but in Hebrew, the book of Exodus begins with the word and, okay, which in English is a horrible way to start a story. Uh, but Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they all begin with the word and. And this happened, and this happened, which is telling us that Exodus begins, well, isn't a beginning, but it's, we're jumping into a story that's already in progress, right? And that is the story of God and his plans to bless the entire earth by choosing Abraham and his family, his descendants. And that's the story we're being invited into. So I wanted to just uh, remind you of something um, that God says, this is actually to Jacob, um, back at, towards the end of Genesis. He says this, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Okay? So this is the promise made to Jacob. And now we're looking at um, almost 400 years has passed since then, okay? 400 years we're getting in this, in this short uh, chapter one. And I see two things going on in, in this chapter in the 400 years. We see two things. One, we see the faithfulness of God to his promises, and two, we see the apparent silence of God in the midst of unfulfilled promises, in the midst of suffering and evil, okay? So I just want to show you these. First, we, we actually do see the faithfulness of God. If you look at verse 7, look at how verse 7 reads. And this is faithfulness to this promise. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, that's almost a, an exact echo of Genesis 1. When, when God creates humanity, what does he say? He says, be fruitful, right? Multiply, increase in number, and fill the earth. And that's 
That, that is happening for the Israelites. And that's the fulfillment to this promise that I will make you into a great nation. And in the Hebrew, what this is written in, um, you get the sense there's almost this divine power, this like miraculous power at work in the multiplication of the Israelites. The, the words literally mean they're, they're teeming, the, the land is teeming and swarming with them, okay? And they just kind of keep multiplying almost miraculously. Look at verse 12. But the more they were pressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Or look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. So God's power at work, fulfilling this promise to turn them into a great nation. Lots of people, and that's happening in Egypt. We see his faithfulness. Um, but the other thing we see, and maybe the thing we primarily think of in this chapter, is not just God's faithfulness, but God's at least apparent silence in the midst of suffering and evil and delay in fulfilling his promise. And, you know, I, I honestly apologize for making light of those names because what, what is described in this chapter is nothing short of just horrific, right? I mean, you have two things going on. First, you have slavery, right? So you have God's people becoming enslaved. They become, they go from being immigrants, right, who came there uh, and had good, had favor and good status in the nation over time, and we don't know how quickly this all changed, if it was over the course of generations or if it was this one pharaoh that kind of, in the course of a year, just kind of flipped their, their status in the nation. But they go from being immigrants with good status to becoming enslaved. They become oppressed. They become this uh, oppressed ethnic minority in the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And essentially, they become the slave labor to run the economic and political machinery that was Pharaoh and his empire, right? They're building store cities. They're building places where you put the excess of the empire. Um, they're the slave labor to make that happen. And I just, let me just, let me just read to you some of the words that, just try to get inside of this. I know it's hard, like on a Sunday morning, just to get inside of this. But here's the words that are used. Oppression, forced labor worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter, harsh labor, okay? So I can't even imagine of that transition going from being free, essentially, you know, normal part of, of, a, of a country, to all of a sudden becoming enslaved in that place, watching your children go through that experience, right? All the pain that would have been a part of that. And we have our own nation's history of taking a people groups and, you know, and putting them into forced labor. We've all read a lot about that. We know the, the horrific stories of that. Uh, in other parts of the world, even today, that continues. We, we see slave labor still out and about in our world. And so we're aware, kind of, of right, what, what that might possibly entail. And that's what God's people went through. And God was apparently silent, at least for a time. So you have slavery, uh, and then on top of that, maybe even worse, you have this uh, state-sponsored genocide, right? I mean, verse 16, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Look down at verse 22, end of verse 22. Every Hebrew, Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live, okay? So we're going to basically breed them out essentially, right? We're going to kill boys who can, you know, 
continue the offspring, and we'll maybe, I'm assuming, intermarry the girls, or just they'll be uh, whatever, slave labor, and we will just kind of breed them out over time. This is their, their plan. So um, parents, just imagine this experience, right, of being young parents or, or young family, and, and uh, wife gets pregnant, right? And uh, usually that nine months of anticipation excitement is just nine months of, like, terror, anxiety, fear. What do, what, and we don't know what we're having. We're not going to know until the baby's born. Is it a boy or a girl? So just imagine all of the, just all the family situations, all the house situations that were happening through that season. Again, we don't know how long it was, but just how, um, how powerless that would have felt, how hopeless, um, how much maybe bitterness, resentment, trauma, you name it, right? This is what God's people are experiencing. And what you have, at least in chapter one, is the, the apparent silence of God. God is not intervening or he's not intervening on a timetable that, that any of those people would have liked to have seen. So it's not till the end of chapter two that we get this statement. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's a beautiful verse, but it begs the question, God, had you forgotten your covenant? Right? Like, what, what about, were you not listening through these other generations? And um, as we read on, we're, we're going to get the answer, but it's, it's, a, it's a sobering one. Here's the answer. God is planning to do a powerful work of redemption, right? He is going to redeem his people. He's going to be faithful to this promise. Uh, he's going to free. He's going to liberate. He's going he's to save. And he's going to reveal himself as liberator, as savior. This is, this is what he says to Pharaoh in chapter 9. Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, okay? This is God's plan, to rescue his people in such a powerful and dramatic way that his name would be made known, not just among his people, but among all the nations of the earth, among Egypt and everyone. He has this plan to redeem so that the world will see, oh my goodness, Israel's God, Yahweh is the true God. Okay, that's his beautiful plan, but that plan requires a, a mighty act of redemption, and that mighty act of redemption requires a time of oppression, right? And this is God's plan. It's a beautiful plan when you see it from start to finish, um, but it could be a really tough plan depending on where you find yourself, <laughs> in the, the narrative arc of that plan, right? So I, um, this is Dave Gunlock's narrative arc of um, the book of Exodus, okay? Here's how the story goes. If I were to draw it right, it starts uh, the move to Egypt, and then you go to this low point. We don't know how long, how many generations were in that low point. Uh, then you have, obviously, redemption, the high point at the Red Sea. You have another low point at the Golden Calf. And the story ends pretty beautifully with God's Shekinah glory coming in and dwelling in the tabernacle in the tent with the Israelites, um, Moses is born right, right at the bottom, right at the beginning of that upward trajectory, at this beautiful moment in time where God is enacting this plan of redemption. But what I see in chapter 1 is you have all these other Israelites, um, some of whom were just born on the, the downward, that first left downward slope, right? And that was their lives, probably. They never got to see 
They maybe, you know, had these promises that God was the God of their ancestors, but they didn't get to see the redemption that Moses got to see. And I made this point when we studied Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel was born in this really tough moment in Israel's history, given a, a, a tough task. And this is the reality, right? That, that God is at work in this world and doing beautiful things, but man, his, his timeline is massive and it's not our timeline. And so uh, people find themselves at different parts of that timeline, right? And I, I think just to kind of bring this to ourselves for a minute, um, we're all, we happen to be alive in 2022 in America, right? This is where, this is our time. We didn't choose when we were to be born. We don't, we don't know what's going on. We know that God's at work still in this world. Um, but we don't know what part of the narrative arc we find ourselves in, right? We could think about our, our own country. Like, where are we in the narrative arc of America? Um, are we kind of alive during sort of the downward trend towards America losing its power? We don't know. Many of us would probably say, yeah, I think so. I think that's what's happening. But we don't know. We don't know if there's revival coming. We don't know what's, what's going on. Um, we're part of God's church in America, and, and the church in the West right now is in a pretty interesting part of its sort of narrative arc. And here's, we happen to be alive now. We're not alive in the 1800s. We're not alive during the, the first great awakening or the second great awakening. We're, we're alive now. And just to bring this to our own lives, like each one of us right now is in a season where our own lives are doing their own narrative arc. Our families are in a, a season, and you might be in a really fun season. This might be a fun stage of life for you, or, um, or this may be a hard stage of life, right? You might be in a season where you're having to care for your aging parents, which you hadn't really thought about how challenging that would be, or now you've got, you've got high school kids or adult children, and that's been hard, or there's health issues going on, or, or whatever it is. We, we find ourselves, right, in various places in God's plan and our own life circumstances. And, and my, my point being... Um, we don't choose that, right? That's just part of where we find ourselves. Um, what matters is simply how we choose to respond to that. And, and I'm a person who's prone to nostalgia, okay? Like when life is hard, I'll go to bed and I kind of think back on, for me, like I go back to college and I'm like, ah, oh, those four years, right? To be young again and to have freedom, right? I'm prone to a different season. I know I'm in a pretty nice part of my a narrative arc, I'd say, so don't feel sorry for me, but, but I'm prone to that. And I think we can be prone to, oh, I wish I could go back, or I wish I could be in a different season. And it really doesn't matter. What, what, what we're called to is, here's where you find yourself. So what does faithfulness look like in this moment, right? What is courage? What is compassion? What does that look like wherever you find yourselves? Lord of the Rings, guys, will you permit me one today? Uh, Gandalf and Frodo. Gandalf's talking to Frodo. This is the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo has learned about this ring that he has that happens to be the ring of power, and he's realizing, oh, wow, so this is Sauron's ring, and like Sauron is about to unleash his force on Middle-earth. And uh, he says this to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Right? It's a good word. And as I look at chapters 1 and 2, 
this is what I see most. You know, we're all familiar with Moses, but what we get in one and two are, are these people, actually five women, who um, didn't choose the time that they were alive, but they, they chose to make decisions that I think were quite extraordinary and courageous and compassionate and humble and faithful, and they did those things. And, um, you know, they had, they had no idea what their, what their actions would, how that would fit into God's plan. But it strikes me as we're, we're going to talk about Moses this year, but um, Moses was not a self-made man, right? I mean, his, his life, his very existence, and who he became is utterly dependent on these faithful decisions of other people in their moment of time and, and, and acting in a way that was... That was faithful. And so I, I want to kind of talk you through um, these five women that are in chapters one and two and, and how each one of them made these really courageous, beautiful decisions in, in their moment. Um, before I do that, how many of you were um, 24 fans, the, the TV show 24? My wife just got real excited. Okay. <laughs> so we love 24. So I, I don't need to describe it, I think, but Jack Bauer... All right, um, he is part of the counter-terrorist unit in Los Angeles, uh, keeping America from uh, instant doom and sudden death all the time, right, every episode. <laughs> and um, one of the things that we talk a lot about after, when we watch, what we love about it is um, in any season, you'd have these moments where like, like very ordinary people get caught in the crosshairs of what's this, these plans, and they're, they're like thrown into like this moment where they have to make this crazy decision, okay? So it'll be like, um, like, a, um, I'm tr- like, like, a, like a destroyer, a U.S. destroyer that's like in, you know, just on our shores is, is commandeered by terrorists, right? And everyone's killed except for one sailor who's down at the, you know, the bottom, and, and somehow se- uh, Jack has like cell contact with this one guy, <laughs> you know? And it'll, right? And it'll be like, okay, what do you have on you? He's like, I have got a pocket knife. And Jack's like, okay, I need you to go to the first level. There's going to be a terrorist by the door. I need you to kill him with your knife. And the guy's like, I'm not a soldier, you know. And, he, and he has, he's just thrown into this, this moment where he has to make a decision or it's like they'll be at CTU and like, you know, Centox nerve gas is like spread into the, into the place and there's a janitor that's, you know, or there's somebody that's like walking and, and again, cell contact with Jack. And Jack's like, I need you to go down this hall and I need you to close this door. You'll probably die in the process, but you'll save the 40 employees that are in the building, right? And you just, they have this moment where they're, they, they wouldn't have asked for it, right? But they, they get to choose what they're going to do. And some step up to the moment. Well, usually they do, but some, some don't. And I look at these, these women, and I go, oh, my gosh, like, it feels like that to me. So all I want to do, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but just, like, use your own imagination. We'll just walk through these women real briefly and just look at the, the decisions they're making uh, that end up being part of God's beautiful plan. So first in chapter 1, we have these two midwives who I made fun of and shouldn't have made fun of. Um, so verse 15 um, they're probably lead midwives. They probably right, oversee, I'm assuming, a group of, of the Hebrew midwives. And they get this, this edict from this command from Pharaoh, right? When you're, just imagine this. Imagine being them. We actually don't know if they're Hebrews. They may be Egyptian, ethnically, who are put in charge of the Hebrews. Or they might be Hebrews themselves. There's some debate about that. It actually flavors it, which one, I'm not sure which. But imagine getting this. 
When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Okay, so imagine being placed in that, in that scenario, right? You've been given an order by literally the most powerful human being on the planet, okay? Pharaoh, most powerful human being on the planet. You assume, I would assume that, that disobedience uh, means death. I, I think that'd be, you would, that ends up not being the case, but you would assume that. Uh, and so there's so much to fear with that. And what does the passage say? Look at verse 17. I love this. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, right? They feared God more than Pharaoh. It sounds just like what the disciples did in Acts 5. We, right, we're, we're going to do what God says. We're going to obey God rather than man. And um, these two women who, I'll bet none of us knew their names before this morning, make this radically courageous decision that ends up sparing lots of people's lives. It's, I was trying to trace this. I think this is the first example of civil disobedience in Scripture, of just this courageous resistance to a, just a utterly you know, immoral edict. And, um, and God spares them, actually. God's gracious to them. Look at, um, look at verse 19. I think this is supposed to be funny. Uh, the midwives answered Pharaoh when they report back, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Sorry, you know. And apparently, you know, Pharaoh buys this. There's, there's uh, I won't go into detail. There's lots of little details. I was reading commentaries that would tell us this Pharaoh was not the brightest, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed. Okay, it was like four or five things in chapter one. But God spares these women. But just imagine that decision that, that spares people. So those are the first two women. And then let's go to chapter two. Then you have Moses' mom. Again, most of us probably don't know her name. Verse 2, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Imagine that. I already talked about that. Imagine giving birth to a son in that context. Moms, imagine this. Um, When she saw that he was a fine child, every mom thinks their child is fine, Um, she hid him for three months, right? So you're this it's a boy, you're terrified, and you're like, we're just gonna, we'll just keep him in as long as we can. At some point, I don't know, he gets too loud, or he, I don't know. You just can't do that forever, obviously. So look at this solution. Uh, she got a papyrus basket for him. That's actually the word for ark, um, yeah, which is interesting, echoes uh, for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Imagine that decision. Um, back in 22, Pharaoh says, you've got to throw every boy into the Nile. So she kind of throws her son into the Nile um, with this little ark that she makes for him. And we'll never know exactly what she thought would happen or what her, you know, we don't know what she's thinking. But she sends him off, offers him to the Nile Um, and sends her daughter, right, along the way to kind of watch and to see what happens. Imagine having to make that kind of a decision as a mom. So that's the third. And then the fourth is, of course, uh, Moses' older sister. We do know her name. Most of us know her name. She's Miriam. So let's let's put her at 8 to 10 years old, okay? We don't know. But just picture an 8 to 10-year-old. She's going along the edge of the Nile. 
I'm assuming kind of crouching down by the reeds, watching her baby brother go along the water. And lo and behold, the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to the river's edge um, and, you know, has this, sees this basket. So this is the daughter of the guy who has said that all of the men of your people group needs to die. So Miriam is an eight to ten-year-old Hebrew slave girl, and she goes up to, and so we don't know all the details, but she goes up to the daughter of the king. I would assume that that would be a very risky thing to do, to engage her in conversation. Um, that could be punishable by all sorts of things. And yet she has the courage to do this. And she steps in and says, hey, you know, um, I, could, I can help with this. And, um, and they have this conversation. And then, of course, that, that brings us to the final woman, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, right? Uh, this is the fifth woman, verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. Uh, here's the key idea. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. So she's Pharaoh's daughter, right? She knows the rules. She knows the edict. She knows, uh, you know, I don't know what her, her dad is like, but she knows the potential consequences, right? And yet in, in this moment, she sees a little baby, and her heart is moved with compassion. She sees him. She hears he's crying. She feels pity on him, and she, she rescues him. One commentator put it this way. She anticipates in her humanity, what will be said of God in the next chapter, she saw, she heard, she took pity, and she rescued. And so they, they, then Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter have this interesting conversation that different people debate, like, I think they're both fully aware of what's happening. Like, Miriam shows up, hey, oh, you know, I could probably find a, a Hebrew woman to nurse this this baby for you, and, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, and, and Pharaoh's daughter, oh, yes, I think Pharaoh knows, like, you're going to send him back to his mom, aren't you? My guess is they all kind of know what's going on. Who knows? But um, so Moses is sent back to his mom. So um, imagine being Pharaoh's, uh, Moses's mom again, right? You give birth to a boy. You try desperately to hide him for three months. You send him off to the Nile. He is returned to you, and you get to raise your boy. And then... At some point, we don't know, three, five, ten, how old he is, you, as promised, you give your boy to Pharaoh's daughter, and um, you say goodbye to your boy. And we don't know what their ongoing relationship was or wasn't in those years, but just think of all the dynamics and emotions uh, that Moses' mom and family would have experienced. All right, so we're just touching the surface of, of these women's lives and their decisions, but um, that's the backstory of Moses. And as I said, he's not a, he's not a self-made man, right? His life and his, even his existence depended on the faithfulness, the compassion, the pity, the, um, the courage, right? The resolve, the humility of these five faithful women and, and others uh, beyond them. Uh, these women who, you know, were, were placed in, in bizarre, unthinkable circumstances, 
and chose to act faithfully in the midst of the circumstances. And none of them could have had any idea how their decisions, how God was going to use their decisions, right, to be, to kind of play out this narrative arc, his grand plan of salvation. They just chose to be faithful and courageous to the moment that they were given. And so that's what I kind of see as I look at chapter one and two, is, is God's beautiful plan working through very ordinary people, but these just simple, humble, courageous, compassionate decisions. And God is using all of that, right, in a tough time to begin to move his story of redemption ahead. And so just to kind of step back and, and think about our own lives for a minute as we think about this backstory, there's two obvious takeaways for me. Um, the first one is, okay, so here I am in this moment, this moment in our church, this moment in my life, this moment in my family. Um, it may be a great moment, it may be a hard moment, but the only relevant question is what does faithfulness and courage and compassion in this moment look like? How can I play my own small part in the moment that I've been given, whatever it is, to be faithful to God? And we're going to give you, in a, in a minute, we're going to give you some actually space to think about. Like right now, what, what, is, what, is, what is courage prompting me to do right now? What is compassion? What would it prompt me to do in the seasonal life that I'm in? But before we do that, uh, we thought what we could do is actually reflect back on our lives and consider the people in our lives who, in their own ways, played these maybe bit parts in our lives or major roles in our lives, but in their own ways made these, these just humble, faithful, consistent, courageous decisions that, that have impacted us. And the, and the truth is we're, we're all sitting in a church today, which means all of us have some level of of curiosity about Jesus, or we, we have maybe a deep commitment to Jesus, but that, that commitment um, didn't come out of nowhere, right? All these people played these small roles in our lives that have led to us, the shaping us and, and giving us some level of curiosity to full devotion to God. And so it was fun for me this week. I spent some time just journaling and just reflecting back on my life and just writing names of people that God has used. And I've had a really nice life. And so I, there's a, it's a long list um, of people in my family, friendships, my larger community, teachers, mentors, you know, coaches, you name it, who all in their ways um, were faithful to something that, um, that impacted me, that shaped me. And so for a minute right now, I want you to just think right now, like don't go down the whole list. But uh, I wonder if just, you know, two or three faces would just kind of pop into your mind right now of, of people who played their own small part, their own faithful part. It could have been a long season or just a moment where you were with them that has impacted you, that is, has borne fruit in your life, okay? So just think for a moment, like just a couple faces and just remember those faces with, with gratitude, recognizing God as kind of the ultimate, you know, giver of these, these people in our lives. Just take a moment to do that. And what we want to do, we actually asked one of you um, if you would share uh, a story of someone who did that in your life. So I'm going to have Barry come on up. Um, and this week, uh, we asked her, hey, would you, this is what we're doing this Sunday, 
would you just share a story of, of someone who kind of played their own small, small part? Um, come on up. Barry and, and Greg have been coming to our church for about three years now. They're lovely people, wonderful. Um, so this is woman number six today. Um, not quite as scary as um, some of what these women had to do. But um, what's so fun about her story is she actually has a story. Um, she's obviously part of our community. But her story is about someone else who's in our community. Um, and she didn't know they were in our community until she'd been at Grace for a little bit and bumped into each other. So it's fun to hear a, a story from one of our members about another a, a member, a couple, actually. So I'll hand it to you to share your story. And then um, Christine will come up and kind of lead us in some prayer after that. Thanks. Good morning. Um, yeah, when Dave and Christina asked me to share today, they told me, I said, there's so many people that's impacted my life, so my life over the years, and <laughs> they said to pick one, so I picked two. <laughs> but they come as a package. And um, one of the things that's fascinated me over my life is early on I read a book called God's Psychiatry. And in it, he talked about how before you started today, God was already planning your tomorrows. And it's fascinating to think about all the little pieces that fit together to make things come together in our lives for his plan and his purpose. But um, when I was 16, I became a believer, but I had never been to church. I didn't know what a Christian was. I had a friend who quoted scripture to me all the time, but, so that's what I knew. But um, there, was, there were some faithful friends who took me to a Bible study, but the history of that Bible study was a man and a woman who had four, four boys, raising those boys, and they decided with their friends that they wanted to know more about the word. And... <laughs> Their only rule was no girls were allowed in the Bible study and that they were going to be bachelors to the rapture, no girls allowed, ever. So, but somehow along the way that changed. I don't know who decided that girls were okay, but evidently we were. And it turned into this small group of young teenage guys to a group of 300 people meeting on a Monday night. And it was amazing. And on Monday nights, it became, we were called Monday Night Bible Study. And it became this group that on Monday nights, we went, we sang praise songs forever. And then um, Walt Hoffman would give the message. And Walt was an electrical engineer. He wasn't a pastor. But he said yes and stepped forward. And Pat, some of you know her as Pearl, was dragged along with her. <laughs> and she was wonderful. But from Monday night, more of us wanted to know more about the word, and so we started invading their home on Wednesday nights. And Walt would give a message, and then we'd break up into small groups and learn the word together. And then it grew into a Sunday night also, where we sang hymns, all the verses of every hymn, and we enjoyed being together and praying for each other. And we're all still friends today. We all pray for each other. We have a, a woman who's handles all our emails and we all still love on each other and they're not here today because Walt's 95 and Pat's 93 but they're they're an amazing couple who still offer so much to all of us but because of what they did and their faithfulness to us all I learned and cultivated this love for God and knowing him and a love for his word a love for worship a love for community, um, and a love for learning to support one another in prayer. But I also want you to know, too, that 
it was the one-on-one -on -one that we had with them. They made themselves available to us. They loved on us. We knew we could go to them if we needed anything. When I wanted to go on the mission field, they were there for me. When I, my life was falling apart because of something going on in my life, they were there for me. And Pat sat me down when I was 18 and said, if you don't share with everybody so we can pray for you, we'll never get to watch God work together. And all those things have stayed with me because of their open hearts and their open home and their listening ears. So I'd like to encourage you, too, that that's what we can do. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Barry, for uh, showing your faithfulness and just coming and sharing. And what was so fun is actually I remember when Barry had this realization that she was going to church with Walt and Pearl. And she was so excited because she kept saying, you have no idea the impact that these people had on my life just purely by being faithful. And I think that's what we're being called into. We don't know the story that God is weaving for any of us, but we are all part of God's bigger story. And he uses ordinary people like he did with these women um, who loved Moses. And um, they were, it was a simple faithfulness, but it required courage and a listening to God's prompting. And so the question for us, as Dave already said, is in this moment where God has us in this season and this time, how is he inviting each one of us to be faithful? What is he calling each one of us into? And it's different for each of us. What is the humble call that may not be seen by anybody else, but God uses it significantly? And we might not even know how he uses it. Where are we being called to be courageous or compassionate? Um, I think of us in, uh, it could be with, in situations with our neighbors or with our work or with school or maybe our kids' activities or just maybe people that God has us brushing up against, uh, up against, up with on a regular basis where he's just calling us to some kind of faithfulness he wants us to step into something that might require courage. And so we just want to take some time now to listen, to listen to the Spirit, to consider what he might be inviting us into. And I have a feeling that these women um, in Moses' life, they were listening to God. And so they stepped in faithfulness because they were listening. So we want to be a people who are listening to the Spirit. So we're just going to take some time now. Think about the context you're in and what might something very specific be that God is calling you into and asking for you to be faithful. So let's take a moment. 